When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violin Podcast. I am your host, Eric Mogala, and on this podcast, I talk to violinists and musicians from around the world discussing news, discussing violin practice tips, and so much more. And if you're new to us, please make sure to hit the subscribe button and hit the notification bell so that you get notified for when these new episodes come out. It really helps us out to provide more great content for you. We're always looking for ways to provide more value to you guys, and I actually want to give you a YouTube playlist that goes straight into my YouTube tutorials playlist on YouTube. And I'm going to leave that in the podcast show notes in today's episode. Um, I talk about producing a very good sound, trying to have uh, a very loose right hand with the bow hand. I talk about intonation. I talk about so many variety of things that I encourage you to take a look at. So I'm going to leave a link in the podcast show notes for you to take a look at. If you're a returning listener, you may know that I like to talk about music business. And in today's episode, we talk about some violin stuff, but also we're diving into the world of music business with the classical music world. My guest today is classical music entrepreneur based in the United Kingdom, David Taylor. David is one of the leading entrepreneurs and thought leaders in the world of classical music. He has built his career on a dynamic and energetic approach to bringing innovation to the arts, leading him to be described as an arts innovator by the BBC and also was named Forbes 30 Under 30 Europe in 2018. And in today's episode, David is going to provide data and research on the state of classical music in 2022. And some of these are actually quite shocking to me. And I hope they will be giving you a better sense and a better glimpse of the classical music world in today's market. Let's dive right into the episode. David, it's really good to meet you. And we recently connected on Twitter, which is the last place I actually hang out. You know, one day I was checking out my Twitter feed. But I'm like, okay, let me let me see if I'm scrolling, you know, see what's new in the classical music world. And then I came across, you know, I followed you for uh, maybe around a year and a half, two years now. And and then we connected because you wrote a really interesting blog post. And people may or may not know about this of you, but you're a classical music entrepreneur. And I would love to talk about that and dive into that a little bit more later on in the episode, but I just want people to get to know who you are, where you're based, how did you end up and trickle into becoming a classical music entrepreneur? Well, thank you so much. It's great to, to connect to you. And it, yeah, it's been a fascinating time for, for everything going on. So it gives me lots to, to write about and to think about. Um, but my journey into this is, is completely accidental. So I'm based in the north of England. Uh, I'm originally a cellist and that was my background and way into to this world. Um, and yeah, I, I, I left music college quite disillusioned. Um, I applied for a job after a glass of wine too many on, on like late night. Uh, and then three weeks later, was on a plane and teaching cello in Jerusalem and living in Bethlehem. It was the most ludicrous, like three weeks, month of my life for, for massive change. Wow, uh, that's amazing. 
<laughs> it's, it's still surreal. Um, but after a whole year there and seeing some incredible experiences of what the students there had, uh, I came back home and then realised there was lots missing from, from my experience growing up in, in Yorkshire in the, the north of England and then comparing it to my contemporaries at music college and sort of what, what I didn't have compared to them and then also what was missing from the system. Uh, so I had this this famous like uh, idea of, oh, but it can't be hard to, to do like be an entrepreneur or create something. Like how hard can it be? Um, so I decided to start a non-profit, which was a, a regional residential youth orchestra for Yorkshire which then turns out it's very hard to start a non-profit, but that was my, my sort of uh, fast baptism of fire into the world of becoming an entrepreneur. And so alongside experimenting and doing lots of things with the organisation, I also became really fascinated about being an entrepreneur in the classical music world and the fact that it's not part of our, our common modern education system, even though historically it's a real big part of what musicians used to be like. And so I became more fascinated about that and so since the, the orchestra stopped in 2018, I now help uh, people and organisations in the classical music industry thrive in the modern world. So that's a mixture of consulting, coaching, lectures, speaking, you name it, I'll do it for money. Yeah, and I want people to really, really pay attention to what David is saying, because what he said in that last little sentence that he does it for money, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> when you because when you're an entrepreneur, I feel like the misconception is that you, you, you create an opportunity, but then it's very difficult to learn how to monetize that opportunity. And, you know, as you said before, you know, starting a nonprofit is no easy endeavor. Can, can you guide us through the process of what that was like? And, you know, throughout the journey of like, when you decided to really be like, okay, I'm going to have my paper, uh, paper, pen, pencil, whatever, and like jot down the ideas, guide us through what that was like. Yeah, so I think it was something that had been in the back of my head throughout music college, uh, and I left in 20, uh, this is going to now make me feel old, around 2012, 2013. Um, and then when I came back in 2014 was this idea of like, well, I've, I've had that there, I kind of know what I want to do, let's get started. And it was from, I reckon my superpower at the beginning was just like blissful naivety of not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And as a result, didn't realize one, the hard work that goes into creating nonprofits, but also, uh, yeah, some of the opposition that we faced. So it was that idea of like having a pen and paper, working it out, getting going, experimenting. Uh, the music establishment in the area where we're told by the government that we have to go through these local councils and uh, local authorities to, to make partnerships. Uh, they didn't want to, to play ball, even though they were told by the government they, they should do. And so in this National Plan for Music Education, we ticked loads of the boxes they should, and yet there were lots of hurdles for politics, fear, all these other reasons. Um, we had one of these uh, music hubs tell us to F off during our official government partnership proposal meeting. We had uh, a local national um, music organisation deliberately launch a competitor against us after we did a partnership proposal meeting. So there was lots of like, uh big challenges that came that i wasn't expecting but as a result all of a sudden there was a huge amount of necessity so that's when i became really fascinated of if i can't reach parents or students or music teachers to, to get people to join the orchestra how do i reach them and that's where the digital world came in and so for me it became a, a whole period of curiosity a lot of googling which i think is my superpower uh and yeah becoming more and more curious and figuring things out and trying and failing and analyzing and doing it again uh, so I think there's a lot to be said about that approach that we tend not to, to have within our, our training. What's also very fascinating, what you said is that you, I mean, entrepreneurs naturally, they, they make a profit um, 
hold on, I'm going to rephrase that. What's interesting what you said about the, the whole starting this nonprofit, because you found a problem and you try to find a solution to that problem and you try to monetize that solution. And of course, I mean, a nonprofit is gets the misconception that you can't make any money off of a nonprofit. And that's entirely not true. You know, what, what a nonprofit simply is, is just a tax code for the organization not to pay taxes. And of course, when you are not paying taxes, the government wants to keep an eye on you. So that's why it has multiple hurdles and multiple steps. So that way you're, you know, being honest about the business that you are doing so that, you know, the tax dollars are not being paid. And that's something that really has fascinated me as well in the in the area of music business in, the, in our country, in the United States. And I'm sure that we can dive into different problems that the UK faces and compared to the United States. But I also just want to dive into um, like what are some what are some recent events that you have noticed and the trends in classical music? Because I know that this is called the violin podcast. And we talk about violin tips, tutorials. I talk to violinists from around the world, but occasionally I like to talk about these things because it's completely relevant to the conversation of being a violinist. So I want you to guide us and maybe, uh, maybe inform of what kind of trends do you see in the classical music world today that um, they recently have like raised the red flag and be like, okay, we got to pay attention to this. Yeah, so I think the pandemic has been a really fascinating period for us, and I'm I'm fascinated with how the industry works and how we connect to wider society. Uh, I think that systemically we've had a problem with not adopt, adopting innovation for a long period of time, and we've been very resistant to change, and that's within our our mindset, our culture, and our institutions. And that will then trickle down to to individuals who are musicians, both on the the amount of performances they can do, the way they adapt and connect to audiences, and basically, yeah, making your living as well. So pre-pandemic, we hadn't really been investing in the digital world. We've still been focused in it being us-centric rather than audience-centric. Uh, and I think we were sort of unaware we were sleepwalking into a disaster of uh, obscurity. That In essence, we weren't competing for attention in what is now a very attention-focused economy. And the pandemic hit, which was there's so many negative sides to, to the COVID-19 pandemic, but one positive was it gave us a circuit breaker that we should really take note and realize that we're quite far behind. Um, a lot of individual musicians realized that despite performing for 10, 20, 30 years, they didn't actually have a fan base, which is, is mad if you think about that compared to a local band or guitarist or any other music genre, no matter where they are in their career, they will have a fan base and they will be able to, to sell products, uh, ask for donations and things. And a lot of us in the classical music world had to get from zero to a hundred really fast on that front and try and find ways of, of getting money when there weren't performances. So I think that was a, a huge thing that we realized during that period was an issue. Uh, going on from there, um, during the pandemic, I ran a blog series called How to Be an Online Musician, trying to help people with that transition online because some people were 65, 70 year old music teachers who'd never been online before or had no social media. And also the idea of like, how do you make money and what resources are available? And, and one thing that came off the back of that was this realization that we haven't created a culture of curiosity around learning in this sphere. And that a lot of these skills are new to a lot of people who are classical musicians. So I think there's a lot to be said about us upskilling ourselves on the business side of things. Post pandemic is then I think a really fascinating period to look at. And we're seeing sporting events come back with a vengeance and they're uh, not only are they back, but um, for example, the the Premier League for, for soccer in the UK, which is the top league, they're having record attendances now, more so than pre-pandemic. Uh, Glastonbury Music Festival's bigger, and yet 
classical music audiences are down and they're staying down. Um, there's a really interesting League of American Orchestra study into this at the moment, and it's saying about people not wanting to return and they're being vocal about not returning. And so the fact that we are having audiences drop, even though that they're returning elsewhere, means that it's not necessarily the pandemic and it's more, it's been, it's an issue with, with what we're doing in the world to connect to people. I have a question for you in, in regards to that, because in one of your blog articles, you talk about um, you, co you compare classical mu music and the music industry to like major corporations like Nike. That's something that really stood out to me where, you know, audience attendance is actually down 30% from what you said in one of your blog articles. So if Nike or one of these major S&P 500 companies dropped 30% in sales, then the entire world is coming to an end, you know, <laughs> and in classical music yeah. is like 30% you know, it could be worse. Right. But I, I, before I talk into that, um, there are a couple of things I want to talk about. And I have a question for you, actually, do you think that the lack of innovation is the, the reach, like the audience innovation, or do you think it's a lack of music innovation? Because I feel like maybe it's either one or the other, or maybe a combination of both because classical music in general has had a problem of like trying to keep old music relevant trying to keep the Mozart symphonies relevant, the Haydn symphonies, the Brahms symphonies, the, you know, even I know that there is like a renaissance of female composers in the United States right now with Florence Price and, you know, Amy Beach, who was a Bostonian, right? So I wanted to get your take on that and see if, if those problems are mutually ex exclusive or it's kind of like you have to kind of compare and combine all the uh, pieces to the puzzle. Yeah, I, I, I'm tempted to say that they're separate issues. And actually, the music is the bit that we don't necessarily have a problem with, but we have a problem of how we capture it as an experience. And so a stat that I love to throw out, even though we have this horrible thing of like, as you say, yeah, audiences are down about 30 sure. percent. Uh, League of American Orchestra Studies was the one that said about 26 percent of people are saying they're not going to return who were attending pre-pandemic. Um, but the, the positive side to that is that classical music keeps being the fastest growing genre of music on streaming services in the 16 to 35 demographic. And that, I think, is happening despite our efforts. We're not really very good at showcasing uh, music in the digital world, especially to that age demographic. However, yet, I will I will mention this, though, that, I mean, Apple's purchase of Primphonic as um, yeah. something that caught my attention. And that's something that I uh, posted on my YouTube channel, that people should be really paying attention to this. Um, not only because Apple purchased it, but because of the technology that is associated with Apple, you know, like you have the spatial audio. I mean, you're currently wearing AirPods Pro. I mean, this is not an Apple plugin, right? It's not sponsored by Apple, but, but, you know, I think innovation in that technological sense where you have, you know, the actual spatial audio in your earbuds or in your headphones to really experience that classical music, I think is such a it's, it's a forward-thinking idea. I mean, the high-res audio is not a new idea, but I feel like the spatial audio is something that most technology companies have not really looked into. And, and you talk about the audiences. I have, I have a theory in the United States as to why audiences are down, but do you have a, what's the solution? What do you think is the solution to get attendance up for all these major classical music events? One thing I hear from, from talking to a lot of people, um, both in organizations and as individuals, is that we're, we're trying to provide value for money for our audiences. And I don't think it's, it's the right thing we should be doing. I think it's a, a misunderstanding of how the world works. Uh, we're no longer in an economy where we compete for value for money. We're competing for value for time. And time is now the commodity that is the most valuable. 
And so if someone only has so many hours in the week where they can leave their house uh, and arrange childcare or get home from work and rearrange things, they want to get the most value from their period of time. Um, an example I use is I'm a huge rugby fan. Uh, and so when I've been to see England play at the National Stadium, the, the tickets cost an absolute fortune. They're like $150, but they have multiple levels of experience at the event that mean you get more value for time. So there's a tertiary, there's a third ring of experience around the stadium before you get there. There's like a compound. And in there, there are beer tents, there's brass bands, there's food, there's uh, ex-players uh, coaching young people how to play. There's like skill challenges you can do yourself. And so you have that extra ring outside the stadium. Then when you go into the stadium, there's a secondary tier with more bars that are available. There's uh, social media going around on all these digital boards that if you do the hashtag, you come up on there. There's fireworks, there's dancers, there's everything else. But ultimately, people are going for the primary experience, which is a world-class performance by elite performers on a stage, which is kind of the same as us. But what we do is very little. We have a primary experience, which is great. Our secondary experiences are really bad. We have like a massive queue for a really overpriced drink at the interval that isn't great. And maybe a pre-concert talk or a concert program. And then there's no tertiary side. So I think we don't really provide value for, for time in the same way. And realistically, I think young people are a great example of this, that we keep trying to get them with cheaper and cheaper tickets and they don't come. And yet, uh, a beer will cost more than a ticket or a Domino's pizza costs like even more than that. Or uh, a PlayStation game is now like $80, $90. So why are they spending money on things that are more expensive and not coming to us? So I think it's, it's us trying to identify that it's the, the full concert going experience is the issue, which doesn't mean that we have to touch the music, but it is that we have to be very aware of what it is that we're providing. Something that you touched on in terms of, um, I think orchestras, and you know maybe this is just a guess, I'm, I'm not saying that this is the truth, but perhaps maybe orchestras, it's very difficult to connect with a, a younger audience because of the age of social media. I mean, we have, like you said, we're in a, an attention grabbing society where, you know, we have to grab someone's attention to be able to create value for them and get their dollars. And what you said is spot on, you know, even though, you know, we're technically in the US, we're technically in a recession, technically, maybe like, 0.9% down GDP in two straight quarters, which is, it's like a, it's like a mist. <laughs> it's not a, it's not a big hurricane storm, but there's, there's some really interesting economic factors that I follow. And I'm sure you can comment on this as well, that um, salaries in the U S have actually gone up. Right. So people actually have more spending dollars to spend on classical music performances. So it's not the price, as you said, that is the problem. I feel like, as you say, the experience. But I also have a theory that maybe in the US, and maybe you can comment on this in the UK, but you know, we have multiple generations who are going to concerts these days. We have the baby boomers, we have the Gen X, the Gen Z, the millennials. I'm, I mean, I'm a millennial, right? And then Right now, we're seeing that the baby boomers, you know, from the 40s are now aging, right? So they're not able to go to classical music performances and spend their dollars because, of course, you know, like you said, time is a commodity that we so preciously, you know, try to try to have. Um, I'm wondering if you can chime in on that. Do you think age plays a plays a role in, into the decreasing 30% in audience um, going going down? Do you find that to be a factor? Um. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. It was interesting actually looking at the 
uh, the League of American Orchestras report I mentioned, and the biggest factor was not finding an event that they wanted to go to. So I think, although age is certainly a factor and mobility and things, I, I think the the aging audience thing may be sort of a, a a simple way of looking at what is potentially quite a complex issue, and it is all those factors. Yes, they are. If an audience member becomes older, there's then more factors that affect them. But equally, that I think there's then more solutions. It's just that they're being picky about what they then do with that. Uh, realistically, it's probably one of the most COVID-safe environments. So I don't think that's a factor. Like going to a pub is probably significantly worse. So if you are, they have health concerns. That's that's certainly a challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I don't necessarily think it is. And there's more we can do to really value them. And I don't think we. I think we've been very entitled with our audiences in the past and taken them for granted and we've not really invested into them at all or rewarded them for coming year after year after year. It's always about me, me, me as an orchestra where it's like donate to us, give us things, come into our thing. And it's never that return. It's it's almost like having that one really selfish friend who always rings when they're in trouble, but never is, is never there for you. Mm. Um, and I think as a result, that sounds like familiar. The... <laughs> <laughs> sounds yeah, familiar. Everyone has one of those. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think some of the brands are that do the opposite of that are really good. Uh, bizarrely, in the pandemic, there was a soccer team in, in Scotland who rang all of their season ticket holders when they had no games and no income, not to ask for money, but they just wanted to ask how their fans were. And that was their entire thing. There was no return on it, which was like, we just want to check up and see how you're doing. And so any points where there are like connections where they can, can have touching points with musicians and build relationships and actually have that connection is... I think it'd be invaluable going forwards. And in our concert going experience, we have no real point of touch for musicians. There's no way to really build a relationship with them because they are behind. Uh, there's a divide between the audience and the stage and they're almost in a snow globe that we can't really reach out and touch and speak to. So I think the more we can do to sort of to vocalize those connections, whether it's mid-performance, pre-performance, post-performance, are going to help build relationships that mean that we can actually, uh, yeah, have, have long-term meaningful relationships with people. I want the audience to notice that David mentioned the word connection more than once. So connection <laughs> is the key here because as you like all of this factors, like, the, you know, I'm already thinking of like amazing ideas of like how to enhance the, the orchestral experience, because essentially, like you said, we go to pre-concert talk, go to the concert, we go home and then maybe we buy a drink during intermission. Right. But, you know, I, for me personally, as a musician, like I'm, I'm grateful to have performed in a variety of different genres. Like on like tomorrow, you know, after this interview is aired, I mean, I'm going to be performing in a Bollywood concert, which is amazing. Right. And something that I've noticed in the concert that I personally attend is that I have a personal relationship or some kind of connection to the person who was performing. Right. And I think there is that lack of pers personality between, um, most orchestras, I wouldn't say all of them, but most orchestras, I feel like I constantly talk about the concert masters who I've interviewed on the violin podcast, because they're, they're doing outreach, they're doing things in their community. So that way they can stay connected, you know, with the people, you know, Philadelphia Orchestra, I know that the concert master of Berlin, Phil, who's an American, you know, does a lot of stuff on social media, you know, there are a lot of concert masters now who are actively playing a role in the success of their orchestras, which I find to be a very fascinating topic as well. Um, yeah, I, it's just, it's just a very fascinating conversation because I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what 
is a specific solution. Like there isn't a, there isn't like a one specific solution, one size fits all. Like you can't fix every orchestra in the world, right? I think it's really depending on the, you know, the geography and the types of people you're dealing with in that community. I feel like that has a lot to play with it. What did you say? Yes, definitely. So I'm yet to find two orchestras that I've worked with that are the same. Uh, and a lot is down to region, size, the way they work, the way the audience works and things. And there's lots to be uh, around that, that nuance. However, I think there are lots of mini tweaks we could all do to get ourselves like that little bit better. And so I think there's bizarrely still a lot to be said about best practice in the, the social media space, which is really important. And say, for example, using the right aspect ratio on Instagram and stop posting landscape photos and a long link to buy tickets in the caption, which you can't click on because you can't do links on Instagram. And like lots of little things that if you were to Google for more than five seconds, you could find out. Uh, Although, so, uh, I, I, I hate to interrupt ooh. you though, but I feel like the algorithm in Instagram has dramatically changed since its founding in 11 years ago. So there are people who are trying That's to it. post on Reels and trying to be very similar to TikTok because TikTok is right now the dominant social media platform and Facebook and Instagram are, you know, the, you know, Facebook owns Instagram, obviously. And if you haven't known that, then you're living under a rock, but they're just scrapping for users. Right. And, you know, I follow many YouTubers, non-classical music related. Actually, I, I saw a video of a YouTuber yesterday about the decline of Instagram because it's just, there's no community in that app anymore. Right. And that's what made that app so special. So yeah. Anyways, I totally didn't mean to no, no, you're that, right. And, like, and that's a yeah. really good example, actually, because it's changed very quickly. Instagram used to be very photo focused. And then like stories came along because Snapchat was popular and it stole it uh, as an idea. And then like these things change and pivot and we have to react to that, whether we like it or not. We have no say in like the behavior of the marketplace. And so again, like orchestras carrying on what they were doing 10 years ago on Instagram isn't going to work now. They have to change and adapt. And we are seeing bigger, slower organizations managing to make changes faster like you should think like a multinational thing like nike would be really hard to change and i know they have more resources but it's a bigger ship to steer uh and so because we are marketing teams of two three people in some cases that should be quite an instant fix and we're still not having that curiosity and desire to to change with things um and then another generic tweak uh tweak not tweet sorry uh that'd be a complete other social media thing uh, a tweak that we can do to improve is is switching our focus onto being uh, audience focused, both offline and online. And I think that's a really strong mentality to to shift to have that could be really powerful. Whether that is thanking people for coming, creating opportunities for conversation, communities so you can have those connections, just to get my buzzword for the day back in. Um, there's lots to be said about trying to do that, and they're really easy to do, and they are free. So for me, I think that's the most powerful thing. And we overcomplicate all this marketing stuff. Like people make decisions based on human relationships. And so anything you can do to invest in that means that in return, you can ask things in future. I'm, I'm right with you. And when I started the violin podcast, I just started with the equipment that I had. Like, if you take a look at the very first episodes on my YouTube channel, they look terrible. Like they don't, look, <laughs> they don't look like the, the microphone that I have now and the, you know, and the, and the camera that I'm using right now, the external camera, of course, but you have entrepreneurs are really good at, using what they have at their disposal and trying to fix a solution because it helps you and forces you to be creative with little capital. And I think that is, um, that's something that a lot of musicians can learn from our conversation, David, is that you don't have to have a large budget to create a difference in the world. You know, you go on into your community, you go out, if you have repertoire that you want to play, if you want to perform on, 
then darn it, go to your, go to the music school they perform in and then try to get more students and have people come to those concerts, right? That's how you build a community. And that's for me have worked in the past. Cause I feel like everybody knows everyone now and everybody's trying to think too global. But if we go back in history, like I, I mentioned Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, those, those guys, they actually weren't thinking global right at first. They were thinking local. And then because of their brand awareness that people enjoyed coming to their concerts or music was really nice, then they were able to expand outside their city, outside their hometown, state, country, et cetera. So it, it, as long as you make those tiny little steps and create a difference in the world with your music, that's all that matters. And then people are going to resonate with your mission and your values. I think that's like the main trigger point because for me, and I might be going on a rant right now, <laughs> but the orchestras, you talk about trends on social media where people are trying to go with the trends, but classical music is like, I'm going to plant my pole right here and we're going to make a few adjustments, but we're pretty comfortable with where we are. Do you find that to be the case also? Totally. And I'm all here for that rant. You're spot on. Um, yeah. So for two things, and I, I think you're totally right about making that mini community and a point I wanted to add it was that we obsess with social media about getting a bigger and bigger audience. And I think that's because that we can see that someone has like 5 million followers, therefore our 100 is terrible. But realistically, if the same 100 people turned up to your concert every single week in person in real life, you'd think that'd be the most amazing thing ever. So I think there's a lot to be said about having small micro niche followings on social media that are powerful and loyal. Uh, so wherever you are on your journey, even if you only have a few followers, that's still really good. So leaning into that and trying to sort of put it back into real world offline terms is a really nice mindset switch just for, for understanding your value, but also for not going mad and shouting into the abyss of uh, social media. But I totally agree with organizations and it goes back to, to you bringing up Nike earlier. Like if Nike or Apple or someone had a 30% drop in sales, it'd be like smash glass. We need an emergency meeting. Like what's going on? Um, Changing Whereas, CEOs, board of directors yeah. is gone. <laughs> People would be fired. Like there'll be consequences. Yeah. There'd be like external consultants come in. There'd be radical change. There'd be an investigation. Whereas I'm yet to see any orchestra really like hit the alarm bell at any point or even contemplate doing things differently. If anything, it's, oh, we're going to carry on with the same season we planned because we planned it before a year in advance. Uh, even though all the evidence suggests it's not going to work this time. So why would you then keep doing it going forwards? And the pandemic showed that we can program really quickly if we need to. Yeah. And I think this conversation brought up a lot of points, but what frustrates me the most is that people, maybe in our country, in the US, maybe you can comment on the UK and Europe because you're in that community also. But what frustrates me is that when an orchestra goes out of business, it's all about, you know, they, they bankrupt and like, you know, we just couldn't, we just couldn't handle it. Like San Antonio Symphony, for instance, I'm sure you followed that story uh, many months ago. Um, you know, Atlanta Symphony almost filed bankruptcy many years ago, like a decade ago. People, orchestras are going on strike because they demand higher pay. But I, I'm curious to know because a lot of orchestras that I know of are nonprofits. And maybe we can shift the conversation. What if orchestras become for profit? Would the mentality change? Would the marketing change? Would the dollar signs change? And it's not in it's it's not evil to request dollars for tickets, you know, or donations, you know, dollars simply mean a token of appreciation for the service that you're, that you're doing. Right. That's all that is. 
you know, if I'm spending $50 for a concert, that's my appreciation to the organization to provide a service. I think people can really change that mentality in the conversation because not every orchestra needs to be a nonprofit. I mean, as you said, big organizations, you involve a lot of people and a lot of people involve a lot of opinions. And I feel like you have many different opinions that eventually just, you try to go somewhere, but you, you end up in a deadlock. And that's something that has been frustrating for me. And when I, when I talk on the violin podcast, it's not just to limit yourself into just the classical music, but also dive into other genres. And I want to get into that with you. Do you work with organizations that are not just classical music based, but do you work with like other genres, like, you know, like Bollywood? No, no, I'm just kidding about Bollywood, but, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yes. So for myself, I'm very much in the classical world, not because of, uh, actually not entirely sure why, I think it's because that's been my speciality and I like digging into the weeds of it and seeing the change. But when it comes for inspiration, I never look anywhere near. Uh, so it's always other businesses, sectors, how that works. So I'm very, I spend more time researching that than I do probably classical music, if I'm being honest. Um, but on the music side, I don't work with other genres, although potentially with the exception of music students. So I do some work with mm. the Royal Northern College of Music and their entrepreneurship department uh, and helping with uh, entrepreneurship skills for music students there and equal, equally when I go to, to other music events as well. So on the, the individual side, there is that side, but on the organization, it's definitely still in the, the classical world of things. But um, I love your idea of having like a for-profit orchestra. And I think there's a lot to be said about that potentially being a positive and I have a theory that we've not had enough necessity in the, the classical music industry for a while. And as a result, we've not had invention off the back of it. Um, so in the UK, for example, the last orchestra to go bust was in 1955. And that's partly because of our arts council funding model. But in reality, that means that we've gone through however many financial crashes since the 1950s that we've seen like giant banks and Toys R Us and Blockbuster and all these like things fold who are global behemoths. And yet, for some reason, we've just like carried on without any difficulty in, in many cases. We've been almost immune to it because we are supported. And as a result, we've not learned the lessons of how to survive. Now, this is our first time with necessity. And I guess the idea of the for-profit organization kind of stems from like, we know the orchestra no longer has to rely on donations or the government to provide grant money for the organization. You know, they kind of have more control of their destiny because budgets can change. Like I've done an article or not done an article, but I've talked about this in the podcast and my YouTube videos that, you know, the, the American government has like this ginormous budget, right? They just passed the inflation reduction act of like $700 billion. Right. And right. But then, you know, you look at the overall budget of the American government and the arts is lucky to have like two, like 2 million in funding for the arts. Right. That's like, imagine Apple having 2 million in funding. <laughs> That's, no, they're the, they have more money than Egypt, right? Like, so I, I think it, there's a lot to be said. And I think um, we, we should definitely change our, um, our perception of what an orchestra can be, I think. And I love having this conversation with you. And I, and I hope people who are listening are getting a lot of value out of this conversation. If they are, and if you are, uh, hit the like button, you know, hit the subscribe button because I want to continue talking about this, but also keeping topics like this relevant in our, in our field. And, um, you know, as I said before, the violin podcast is about violin, but you are clearly a cellist. And I want to talk about your background in cello because you went to school for cello. And, um, 
how has your experience in the cello um, influenced your decision-making and your entrepreneurial endeavors? It's a really interesting question. Um, I think from music college, I, I didn't have the best of experiences when I was there. And as a result, I think like many people may be able to sympathize or, or have similar experiences where it's, you can see occasionally the favorites always getting picked for the same opportunities and you can kind of predict that you're not going to get them just on the basis of, of that rather than of anything else. Um, and so as a result, again, there was necessity. So uh, for a while, I realized I wanted some more like solo opportunities. So I found a website that listed every amateur orchestra in the United Kingdom. And I sat through and wrote them personal emails of I would like to play this piece with you based on your recent repertoire and did that for about four days straight while watching TV and just like writing them away. And as a result, got opportunities off the back of it. So I think bizarrely that part of my journey helped sort of start that creative, like I need to find a way of doing things for myself. Uh, I speak with musicians. We call that solopreneur. Solopreneur, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I resonate with that a lot. <laughs> definitely. It's, it's a really, uh, I think a lot of people have had similar experience of like having to find their, their own way through the music world. Um, but from speaking to a lot of musicians and helping them with, with their own career paths and things, I think we actually have a real luxury in being musicians when it comes to being entrepreneurs, because we actually have this incredibly trained analytical mind that is meant to reflect on things and make decisions quite quickly and adapt and understand not only how to make them better, but why they went wrong and learning and passing that information on to others. So realistically, if we take that little analytical brain and shift it either to like, is my concert poster good or how can I identify new opportunities or um, what other uh, chances are there for me to monetize things alongside my main outputs? That brain's going to really fly in a way that people from other backgrounds may not necessarily uh, be able to. So I think bizarre, it's, it's quite a hard transition shift, but we've already got that muscle there. And I think actually being able to take that muscle and do other tasks with it is probably quite a fascinating thing. And I, I get really excited seeing people do that mindset shift with all these skills and passions and, and analytical ways of thinking that they already have. Do you still play your cello? I haven't played one for four years. That's the Ooh. confession. I know, Ooh. I know. Ooh, I got, we got to um... take some points off. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, I, I'm teasing. I... That's okay. It's, I, I, I recently had a baby, so like I haven't practiced. <laughs> I had a shock to the system this week. I played a friend's guitar. Like I don't really play guitar, but like in college, played a, a tiny bit of acoustic guitar and so oh you've got a guitar in the corner I'll, I'll play it and i realized that this is the first time that my calluses have gone and that was a shock this, oh. i haven't felt my end of my fingers since it was about seven and all of a sudden this realization that they were not there was quite terrifying oh my gosh yeah i i know the feeling yeah but no what you said what you said about the you know the skills of a musician being applied to an entrepreneurial mindset is spot on i've talked about this even to my students who are um, like great violinists. And I always tell them that like, you know, if you become a violinist, that's totally fine. You know, I don't want to make sure that you as a whole, as a person can function in society because I, you know, there are people out there that want their kids to be prodigies and famous soloists. And I tend to not force that much pressure on the kid, personally speaking. So having these essential skills, like as simple as just having a pencil when you go to your lesson, you know, being prepared, having the preparation. I talk about basic life needs in my violin lessons so that way they can prepare for the real world if it's music related or if it's not music related. And you, you find most of the time that in studies that people or kids or students who have music education tend to fare 
pretty darn well in the professional world because they have those skills, which is also a plug for music education and something that you're obviously passionate about because you started a nonprofit, you work with kids. Tell us a little bit more about those endeavors and um, you know how that's changed your perspective on the future of music education. Yeah, so so um, my business was this regional residential youth orchestra course. It only existed for for one week of the year, and they would all come together for this residential course. Um, and with it, it was it was me trying to sort of find solutions to the problems that I had when I was studying and wish I knew before I got to music college. So as well as having access to a level of tuition with players from pro orchestras that they don't have access to, uh, they also had sessions on entrepreneurship. When this would be back in 2015, so that time was really progressive careers, uh, stage etiquette, uh, mental health and well-being. Um, they were also the first youth auction in the world to use iPads instead of sheet music. Uh, we also had digital concert program app, uh, notes app that they helped develop and they were a part of creating that content. Uh, we had parity within the orchestra, so between every single piece, every player had to change position. Uh, so it wasn't just that you were stuck at the back of the second violins, you were also understanding what it meant to be a principal player, playing a different part. Uh, and trying to have that idea that you're a collective rather than it being a, a hierarchical system as well. Amazing. Well, David, we're we're just about to run out of time and I really appreciate this conversation and getting to meet you because this is so valuable to anyone who's listening to this episode. And I I want to ask one last question. What are some points or some key tips that you can give a musician um, in today's climate to really help them excel in their music career, or if they're not really sure about a music career, how can they, how can they take a step back, reevaluate their situation so they can, you know, create success for them down the line? Really good question. And please forgive me, but I'm going to crowbar in an example I really wanted to share, but it does follow, follow into this. Please, uh, I'm down for that. <laughs> so um, I'm fascinated with actually our history of being musicians is of, of being entrepreneurs. Like we've had this weird 100 year experiment with specialization where you got a job and a salary. But historically, all the people that we, we venerate were entrepreneurs. Mozart was an entrepreneur and did multiple different things with a portfolio career. Bach did. Um, Paganini, when he heard rumors about selling his soul to the devil to become good at the violin, started dressing in black. So he played up to it with the brand. But my, my recent favorite example is um, a pianist called Paderewski who went on to be uh, the first prime minister of Poland. And he was hugely, hugely successful based on him being an entrepreneur. And so- Little, he... little side note, by the way, I am Polish. So like- oh, perfect. <laughs> so, <I'm>... yeah. <laughs> Incredible example. And like, he's now, I'm totally fanboying over him. He's fantastic. And so he was a really early adopter of photography and started posing in photos really early on. When he went to America, he deliberately started getting in gossip columns. Uh, he had cartoons of himself, so you can actually see cartoons of his bow in newspapers and magazines from the time. Uh, he became so popular and famous for, one, the fact he had huge, huge hair, but also that he smoked a lot. He launched his own range of shampoo and his own range of cigarettes as like a side hustle. Uh, and because Not of bad. his... Yeah, it's not bad. And because of that, he came incredibly wealthy, which isn't the goal for everyone. Uh, but that helped him with the, the creation of Poland when he was able to secure loans for the, the emergence of Poland uh, based on his credit rating, not that of the new country. Um, so going into now sort of what that means for you going forwards, I think trying to identify multiple ways of having uh, multiple income streams for yourself that aren't necessarily going to be something that you retire on, but are going to be able to support you through thick and thin. So we realized in the pandemic that if we didn't have performances, 
but we're kind of in trouble. So looking at like what other things that I can do that can bring people value, whether that is if you write exercises for your students in lesson, why not make them into a PDF and sell them on your website or um, educational talks, workshops, uh, anything that is passive that you can sell on the back of it, whether it's books or resources or accompanying tracks, all these different things and try and identify lots of little things you can add on to your existing career as a, as a musician, but also as an entrepreneur that can give you a little bit of extra income. So if you stop playing, whether it's for circumstance or choice, you're going to be supported in some way, shape or form. But then also for the questioning side, I'd go back to like identifying your strengths, weaknesses and what you love doing. And if you try to identify what you enjoy doing most, there's more chance you'll stick with that for a longer period of time when it gets harder. That's amazing advice. So if you're not writing this down, then you should be, because I think this is amazing value um, David, it's been a pleasure talking to you. How can people get in touch with you? How can people kind of learn what, what you're doing these days? Thank you. Uh, yes. Yeah, so my website is david-taylor.org. Um, on there, there's all the information about me and all my social links. So that's probably the best way of finding those, uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, go mad. I'm on pretty much anything you can think of. Uh, and I've also just as genuinely today is the first day my book has gone in sale in the United States. It came out yesterday in the UK. Uh, no way so book, your book yeah yeah like i'll send it after this it's it's genuinely today um so that's called the future of classical music part one which is a collection of articles talks and ideas on on what the future is as a conversation starter so if you're interested in that it's it's meant to be a conversation starter and i'd love to hear uh, your thoughts and feedback if you agree if you disagree what your thoughts are going forward so if you want to be a part of that conversation uh, i'd love to hear from you Friends, this is David Taylor, classical music entrepreneur based in the UK. David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.